In the 1960 Summer Olympics, a young 18-year-old boxer took the world by storm by winning gold in the Olympic Games. He won the gold medal in the light heavyweight division. Later that year, he turned pro, which was pretty remarkable for this 18-year-old because he had just taken up boxing six years earlier at the age of 12. But he was so good when he won that gold medal, he turned pro, and perhaps you've heard of him before. His name is Cassius Clay, Jr., better known as Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, just about every sports expert agrees, was one of the greatest boxers of all time. His joint records of beating 21 boxers for the world heavyweight title, winning 14 unified title bouts, that record stood for 35 years. Sports Illustrated ranked Muhammad Ali as the greatest heavyweight boxer of all time. ESPN ranked him as the third greatest athlete of the 20th century. And you probably know that one of the things that Muhammad Ali was most famous for was doing some really good trash talking. He was a trash talking kind of guy, wasn't he? His arrogance and his trash talking was absolutely infamous. Before uh, hip-hop and and, uh, rap became trendy and very popular, he was stringing together these verbal taunts that were absolute poetry. One of his most famous ones before facing George Foreman was, I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. That was a pretty good little taunt going on there. Before he faced Sonny Liston for the world heavyweight title, he famously said, he's too ugly to be world champion. The world champion should be pretty, like me. Later on, at other times, he said, I'll beat him so bad, he'll need a shoehorn to put his hat on. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. If you even dream of beating me, you'd better wake up and apologize. And if anyone didn't hear the message loud and clear that Muhammad Ali had a very high opinion of himself, a couple of his most famous quotes were, I'm the king of the world. And then maybe his very most famous, very most famous, that's well said, probably his most famous line that he ever said was, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. I said that even before. I knew that I was. One of the things that made Muhammad Ali so popular was that great trash talking, that arrogance, that bravado. But what might be entertaining in the boxing realm when we're watching something as entertainment is downright tragic when we hear that kind of arrogant trash talking among Christians who are called to serve. But that's exactly what we come across here in Luke chapter 9 as Jesus has an encounter with his disciples that are doing a little bit of arrogant trash talking, and Jesus has to set them straight. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 46 in just a moment. I'm calling today's message, So You Want to Be Great. So You Want to Be Great. Jesus is going to give us the secret to true greatness. Luke chapter 9, we're going to be starting in verse 46. If you have your Bible with you today, go ahead and turn there. It's the third book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you today, grab one of the blue ones from the rack in front of you. And uh, as you turn in one of those uh, blue Bibles, you will find this on page 1027. 
If you need a Bible of your own, just let us know after the service. We'd be happy to send you home with a free Bible. And as we're ready to dive into God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the privilege You give us today to dive into Your Word. And we pray, O God, that You would open our minds and open our hearts to what You want to tell us. Uh, Lord, we do not come into this place as perfect people. We are messy people. Uh, Lord, we've got some problems. And we just want You to speak to our minds and hearts, Lord, and help sort out what You desire to sort out to help fix what you want to fix, to help transform what you want to transform. Help us, Lord, to be willing vessels to be used and shaped by you however you want in this place today at this time. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You guys ready to dive into God's Word? Are you ready to dive into God's Word? Who is the greatest? Okay, you have to think about that for a second, some of you. Who's the greatest? And he has a great word for us today. Luke chapter 9, starting... In verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then Jesus said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Now, it's been a, a few weeks since we've been here in Luke chapter 9, so let's refresh our memories on what took place in those first 45 verses. In the earlier verses of Luke chapter 9, uh, Luke recorded for us some of the most important messages and some of the most important moments in Jesus' ministry. In verse 20, uh, Jesus asked his 12 disciples the point blank question, Who do you say that I am? And remember, Peter stepped forward and said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And that would become the foundational statement, the foundational belief of Christianity, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Well, that was a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry earlier in chapter 9, and so too was what happened next in verses 28 through 36. Jesus took three of his 12 apostles, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain to pray. And remember what happened while they were up there praying. Peter, James, and John started to doze off a little bit as they tended to do when they were praying with Jesus. They didn't have much prayer stamina. And as they wake up from their little snooze, they see that Jesus is in glorified form. His clothes are shining like lightning. His face is as bright as the sun. They're shielding their eyes, and they notice there's two others with Jesus, and they soon realize it's Elijah and Moses from the Old Testament. We call this the transfiguration. Transfigure is another word for metamorphosis. Jesus was metamorphosed in their presence there and took on his heavenly glorified form along with Elijah and Moses. And so Peter, James, and John got to experience this. But in Matthew 17, 9, the parallel account, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So they are sworn to secrecy. Remember, they come down the mountain, and the next day they find the other nine apostles who are stumbling all over themselves because they couldn't drive a demon out of a little boy. They tried. And even though at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus had given them power and authority to drive out all demons, all nine of those apostles together, for whatever reason, couldn't drive out one single demon from a little demon-possessed boy. So there they were with egg on their faces as Jesus marched into town, assessed the situation, and drove out the demon and healed the boy who was dealing with epileptic seizures as well as demon possession. Jesus healed him 
in an instant. And so as those nine disciples are embarrassed, not having been able to heal this boy, and those other three that had come off the mountain are sworn to secrecy, in verse 44, Jesus there in chapter 9 says, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Well, that's where we left off a few weeks ago, and as we pick up in verse 46, a few days have likely passed since Jesus has reminded them again that he's headed to Jerusalem. But Jesus' transfiguration is still fresh on the minds of Peter, James, and John, and the other nine disciples' failure is still fresh on their minds as well. And so we pick up here in verse 46, and it says the 12 disciples got into an argument as to which of them was the greatest. Now Mark tells us in Mark 10:34 that they had this argument while they were walking back to the town of Capernaum. Now because of what James and John had just experienced a few days earlier up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and because a little bit later we learn in Matthew chapter 20 that James and John along with their mommy come up to Jesus and say, "Hey Jesus, You know what? You don't have to let the other disciples know this, but we'd kind of like to have the best seats in your kingdom. Uh, Can you please make it possible so one of us can sit on a throne to your right and the other on a throne to your left? Uh, Can you give us the best positions in your kingdom? Now, remember when the other disciples caught wind of this, they weren't too happy, were they? They weren't too happy. So because they had just experienced this transfiguration and because we know that a few weeks, maybe a few months later, they specifically asked Jesus to give them the best place in his kingdom, I think it's probably pretty safe to say that James and John were somehow behind this argument of who is going to be the greatest. And so I kind of imagine it going down this way. Uh, John walks up to uh, Jesus And, well, let me take a step back, even further back from that. As they're on that road, those other 12 disciples, I imagine, are kind of lagging behind Jesus. He's out in front leading the way. And so John starts this little argument with the other disciples. Guys, you know, don't you, that when Jesus sets up his kingdom, James and I are going to outrank you guys. We're going to be the greatest. Andrew fires back, oh, yeah? Yeah, you think you're going to be the greatest. Well, let me think back a, a, a few weeks. Let, let me think back, guys. Okay, what did Jesus do with those five loaves and the two fish? If I remember right, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he multiplied them to feed 5,000 men, over 10,000 people total. He did that with five loaves and two fish. And there was one of us who found the little boy who had the five loaves and the two fish that Jesus took and multiplied so he could feed the 5,000. Who was it again that brought that little boy to Jesus? I can't quite... Oh, now I remember. It was me. I am the greatest. And Judas Iscariot's listening to all this. (laughs) You guys, you guys are so full of yourselves. Who did Jesus put in charge as the treasurer of our group of disciples? Who did he put in charge of the money bag? Oh, that's right. It's me. Why on earth would he allow any of the other 11 of you yahoos to carry the money bag? He wouldn't. He let me be the treasure because I am the greatest. And at that point, I'm guessing James and John, man, they couldn't contain themselves. And they say, guys, 
Let, let me just stop this argument right here. Do you remember when the nine of you were down in that little town and the nine of you all together couldn't drive out one measly little demon from that little kid? While that was all going on, who was up on the mountain at the VIP party that Jesus invited us to? Oh, that's right. It was Peter, James, and myself. We were at Jesus' VIP party, and what happened on that mountain was absolutely amazing. In fact, it was so amazing, Jesus said we couldn't even tell you about it. I can't even divulge what happened on that mountain. But I'm telling you, it was amazing, it was incredible, and you guys wouldn't believe me if I told you. So hands down, I am the greatest. They're having this argument. And I'm pretty sure that James and John's egos were out of control, and they were doing some serious trash talking. Judas, you're too ugly to get the best place in the kingdom. Matthew, if you even dream of beating me to the best place, you'd better wake up and apologize. I am the king of the world. I am the greatest. I sometimes like to refer to this as Muhammad Ali syndrome. They thought each was the greatest. They had overinflated views of their own self-worth. Verses 47 and 48, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child. He had him stand beside them. He said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. After some three years of Jesus' ministry, he had consistently identified with the unimportant outcasts of society. When you think about it, whether it was a quarantined leper or a despised tax collector, or a demon-possessed loner living in the tombs, or a prostitute who was the brunt of every man's jokes in town, Jesus humbly reached out to and embraced and loved the outcasts of society. And in his view, there was no question about it. Any of his followers who refused to do the same would never be anyone great in his kingdom. I like Chuck Swindoll's comments about verses 47 through 48 in his commentary. He writes, The response by Jesus is priceless. He rebukes his disciples by embracing a child, someone too small, too weak, too helpless to be great. With the little boy standing with him, Jesus rearranged the worldly pecking order. He upset the normal conventions of hierarchy and leadership. His speech was simple, consisting of three statements. Number one, whoever welcomes this little child welcomes me. Number two, whoever welcomes me welcomes God the Father. And number three, he who is least among you, he is the greatest. Mark really comes in handy at this point because Mark gives us a little addendum to Jesus' teaching here that Luke doesn't record. Mark tells us in Mark 9.35 that Jesus went on to say, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Isn't that good? If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Here Jesus turns the world's pecking order upside down. In the world, our our world says the greatest man, the most important man, is the one who is on top and tells everyone underneath him what to do. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way things work in my kingdom. That's not the way at all. 
in my kingdom, the greatest man, the most important man, isn't a man at all. He's a child who is on the very bottom serving everyone else above him. Isn't that good? We call this style of leadership servant leadership. It's very interesting. Servant leadership over the last 40 years has been kind of all the buzz in leadership and management circles. Isn't it interesting that in secular leadership circles, those that don't even read the Bible, those that don't even follow Christ, have come to the conclusion that the most effective leadership style for a CEO to carry out is servant leadership. You see, they've discovered that if a CEO simply lords it over his employees, they can very quickly lose interest in carrying out the work they're supposed to carry out, and there's a high turnover rate. They get fed up and say, I don't need to put up with this, and they take off. But a servant leader, one who is able to lead his organization by somehow coming down at the level of his employees and showing them that if they do what they've been hired to do, it is in their best interest, and their CEO is always working in their best interest as well, it's amazing the results you can get from your employees. Isn't it interesting that 2,000 years later, secular leadership gurus have discovered that Jesus was right all along? The best kind of leadership is servant leadership. We lead others most effectively by serving others. Our greatness is not defined by how much we get others to serve us, but by how much we serve others. William Barclay summarizes Jesus' teaching on greatness so well. He says, Jesus was saying, if you are prepared to spend your lives serving, helping, loving people who in the eyes of the world do not matter at all, you are serving me and serving God. If you are prepared to spend your life doing these apparently unimportant things and never trying to be what the world calls great, you will be great in the eyes of God. My, how the tables are turned on culture's common view of leadership and service. Jesus' definition of greatness is so much different than the world's definition of greatness. But sadly, far too many Christians buy into the world's view of greatness. Far too many Christians choose to pursue greatness in the eyes of the world instead of greatness in the eyes of God. Far too many Christians pursue prestige and power and fame. But Jesus calls us back to a humbler, simpler Christianity, doesn't he? A Christianity marked by putting others' needs above our own needs. A Christianity marked by getting our hands dirty, loving those whose lives are messy and undesirable. A Christianity marked by being the first to volunteer to be last. In recent week, we've had, weeks, we've had a young man named Grant that comes to the church about two or three times a week. He's homeless. He lives evidently in some abandoned house out in the middle of who knows where in North Atlanta. He comes in. He's always wearing the same dirty shirt. Same dirty pants. Came in this last week. One fist was holding up one pant, side of his pants, because he didn't have a belt. We got him a belt. He comes in hungry. We get him some food. Most of the time when he's talking, he's babbling, and you can't understand what he's talking about. Told me a few weeks back as I was giving him a ride over to the homeless shelter so he could get a meal and hopefully a clean, warm place to stay and a shower, which he hasn't had in quite a while took him over to the homeless shelter. He told me on the way there that the most important thing he owns is his meth pipe. 
Didn't we give you a Bible a few weeks ago? Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, maybe it shouldn't be my pipe. This man is hurting. And he came in the other day, and I was busy getting ready for the sermon, and I was up against the gun getting there. My, my deadlines met. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is inconvenient. Of all times, he had to stop by. Why did it have to be now? Why didn't I just lock the door? Kind of like I've joked with some of you in the past, when you see the Jehovah's Witnesses coming up the street, you want to turn your front sprinklers on, scare them off. Sometimes it's just not convenient, is it? But we've got to ask ourselves, are we serious about doing what Jesus is calling us to do here? To lead by serving and putting others' needs above our needs. Being a blessing to others instead of being a blessing to ourselves. Not serving when it's convenient, but serving when it's needed. I'm so thankful that a young man like Grant feels safe coming here. Getting a little food, getting a little bit of ministry. I asked him if he gave his life to Christ yet, and he says, yes. I gave my life to Christ in 2013, in 2015, in 2014, in 2016. He started rattling off every year since 2013, and I don't know what he was saying, but you know what? We're going to continue to minister him as best we can. The 20th century Scottish novelist, A.J. Cronin, he was a medical doctor as well as a novelist. He once told a story about a traveling nurse that he knew. And he says, for 20 years, this nurse single-handedly served the sick in a 10-mile district. Cronin writes, I marveled at her patience, her fortitude, and her cheerfulness. She was never too tired at night to rise for an urgent call. Her salary was most inadequate. And late one night, after a particularly strenuous day, I ventured to protest to her. Nurse? Why don't you make them pay you more? God knows you are worth it. To which she responded, If God knows I'm worth it, that's all that matters to me. Wow. If God knows I'm worth it, that's all that matters to me. How different this world would be if every follower of Christ adopted this same humble attitude of service. I don't need to be patted on the back. I don't need certificates and trophies and awards. I don't need everybody saying, attaboy. If I'm doing something that Jesus thinks is important and worthy, then that's enough for me. What a marvelous attitude of humble service. Isn't Jesus' teaching here so amazing? Let me ask you. If you had been there on that day arguing with the other followers of Christ about who was the greatest and Jesus kind of called you on the carpet and rebuked you by bringing a little child before you and saying, hey, you yahoos, you need to be more like this kid here. He's greater than you are right now. If you had just been rebuked for your arrogant boasting of greatness by Jesus, if you would just been rebuked by him, how would you have responded? How would you have responded? Would you have responded with some shame or some regret? Man, I I really blew it. I didn't realize how out of line I was when I was jockeying for the best position in the kingdom. Uh, Perhaps you would have apologized to Jesus. Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm just an idiot. I didn't realize what I was doing. Please forgive me. Those would have been some smart things to do. Those would have been some smart responses. But let's look at how the disciples actually responded. Picking up in verse 49, we get to read about how at least John responded. 
Verse 49. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Not a very good apology there, is it? Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Of all the bonehead things to say, of all the dumb things to say, oh, Jesus, oh, yeah, I guess we shouldn't argue about being the great. Hey, you know there was a guy trying to drive out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, Jesus, because he's not one of us. Did John actually think that this was demonstrating humble service to Jesus? Did he actually think that this was a smart thing to say? Did he actually think that he was showing Jesus tangible evidence that he was paying attention to what Jesus had just said? And imagine how nutty this is for him to say that. There is a poor old fellow out there who's been demon-possessed for who knows how long, and that demon is making his life a living hell, literally. And there's that poor demon-possessed guy, and there's some other guy out there that's driving out the demon from that demon-possessed guy. And here John is, whoa, you got to stop, buddy. you got to stop until you show me your credentials. You're not one of us. You need to allow that guy to stay in his agony and misery for a little while longer until I have a chance to check your credentials. How stupid is that? It'd be similar to, you know, you see a guy drowning out in the lake, and you're 100 feet away. And you see a guy that's 50 feet away diving into the water and swimming toward the drowning guy to save him. And you yell out to the guy that's close, say, hey, stop right there. I-, I need to check to see if you're a certified lifeguard. You come back here. We've got to have a short interview before I let you swim out there and save the guy. So the guy comes back, and meanwhile the guy drowns because he wasn't one of us. We couldn't stand for that. Jesus says, in essence, this is utter lunacy. If he is not against us, he is for us. If he's doing the work of God, let him do the work of God. Let him do it. Well, this statement of John is way out in left field. He actually seems to believe that he is demonstrating some sort of humble service. But his statement and the reasoning that went into the statement is absolutely ridiculous. John didn't get it, what Jesus had just said about humble service. The other disciples didn't get it. And even with the gift of hindsight, so often we today don't get it either. We move on into verse 51. It says, As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome Jesus because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Oh, no, they're talking again. They asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? That's a good response, Peggy. Good grief. But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Verse 51 has been described as the great continental divide in the book of Luke. If you were to look at a a map of North and South America together, 
with the Continental Divide called out. It, it runs from the, the tip of Alaska all the way down through Canada, through the Rocky Mountains of the United States, down into Mexico, down into South America. And so you basically have this mountain range that runs from north to south across both continents. And it's called the Continental Divide because, as a rule of thumb, if something falls on the left side of the Continental Divide, it will run, water will run into a river or stream that will end up in the Pacific Ocean. If something falls on the right side of the Continental Divide, it'll tend to run to the east into the either the Gulf or the uh, Atlantic Ocean. And so this Continental Divide, that what falls on the left tends to flow to the left, what falls on the right tends to flow to the right, east-west, west-east. And so what happens is with this Continental Divide is it's, it's a wonderful little indicator for those studying uh, geology and formations and the formation of rivers and streams and all that good stuff. Here in Luke, we have this continental divide of sorts uh, here in this first verse, verse 51. Notice what it says again here. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So this is a key verse because it basically says from this point forward, everything that Jesus would teach, every place that Jesus would go, Every miracle that Jesus would perform had the shadow of the cross in mind. Jesus, at this point, dips his head and moves forward for Jerusalem. He's resolutely set on going to Jerusalem, and everything he says, everything he does, every miracle he performs has in mind the cross and the tomb, his death and his resurrection. Jesus is now setting out for the cross. This uh, wording in your quote there is kind of an adaptation of how Chuck Swindoll described it. He basically tightened his lips, set his jaw, fixed his eyes on the cross where he would die and on the tomb where he would rise again. Verse 62, excuse me, 52, Jesus sent several of his followers on ahead to make arrangements for his lodging in a certain village in Samaria. For whatever reason, I guess he figured as he's heading to the cross, he wants this one last opportunity to share the gospel with those in the region of Samaria. And so he decides to go through Samaria, even though most Jews would never go through Samaria. They'd rather cross to the east side of the Jordan River and head down the east side of the Jordan and then jog over to Jerusalem instead of going through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans, and frankly, the Samaritans to a large extent hated them too. But Jesus goes through Samaria in verse 52. As his followers go up ahead in this certain village in Samaria to make arrangements, they get there and they're not received. They head over to the Motel 6, but Tom Bodine had not left the light on for them. They get there and they say in no uncertain terms, you guys and your group are not welcome here. You're not welcome here. Verse 54, John is really on a roll in this chapter. He and his brother James speak up. Hey, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to burn them up? He must have had Elijah on his mind because, remember, just a week or so earlier, he'd been up there on the mountain of transfiguration. He'd seen Elijah and Moses with Jesus. And Elijah, one of the things that the Jews loved about him was there was that certain time when Elijah was up on a a mountain, up on a hill, I should say, and uh, that wicked king had sent 50 soldiers to come arrest him. And so 
He said, well, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and burn you up. And so that's exactly what happened. Fire came down and burned up the 50 soldiers. And then another 50 soldiers came. The exact same thing happened. And so this must be fresh on James and John's mind. Hey, let's have a little Old Testament fire revival here, Jesus. They didn't want to host you, Jesus. Let's call down fire from heaven and burn them up. Well, in the NIV translation here in verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. But if you look at the New American Standard, the New American Standard pulls on some manuscripts that are a little bit later. Uh, Long story short, when the translators of the Bible are translating the New Testament, they have thousands of early manuscripts to work off of. Some were as early as the 2nd century A.D. Others go all the way to about 1,000 A.D. And when you look at that span of about 900 years, Uh, Some sections of the New Testament have over 20,000 manuscripts we can draw from in order to make sure our translation is accurate. And so you find in the New American Standard, they draw on some translations that the NIV doesn't. And so Jesus very well may have added this to what he said in verse 55. You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, men's lives, but to serve them. So evidently, that was part of what Jesus said in response to James and John's silly comment about calling fire down from heaven. What are you guys thinking? I did not come to destroy lives. I came to serve lives, echoing what he had just been teaching them about the little child and how to be great in his kingdom by serving others and being the least among others. This had not been a good stretch for James and John. On the heels of seeing Jesus in glorified form there on the mountain of transfiguration, what should have humbled them actually had caused their heads to swell. Jesus is teaching about his mission to lay down his life for the world had flown right over their heads. Jesus is teaching about humbly serving others had completely escaped them. It didn't sink in. Uh, They were shushing those who didn't need to be shushed. And they were lashing out in anger with those that did not need to be incinerated by the fury of God. They so much wanted to be great, but they just didn't get it. They were still clueless about true greatness in God's kingdom. At this point in time, they had no idea. But in the days following Jesus' resurrection, it would finally sink in, wouldn't it? And those men, when it finally sunk in and the Holy Spirit would come upon them on the day of Pentecost, these men would finally understand the truth about true greatness in Jesus' kingdom, and these men would go on to change the world. So they may have been clueless and, from our standpoint, moronic here in this chapter. But you be patient with these guys, just as Jesus was because they would go on to change the world. I want to give you two life lessons today from this passage. Both, I think, are very important. Number one, if you aren't humbly serving others as you follow Jesus, then you aren't really following Jesus. If you aren't humbly serving others as you follow Jesus, then you're not really following Jesus. If you've been going to this church for any length of time, I hope that some way or another you're plugged into serving somehow at this church. If you're visiting with us today, you just come and soak it all in. If you haven't given your life to Christ yet, we want you to focus on just soaking it all in. 
But once you give your life to Christ and begin growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's critical that we serve Christ and serve others. We talk about fairly often there's these two great seas in Israel. In the north there's the Sea of Galilee. It's got beautiful fresh water and it's just teeming with life, all sorts of different species of fish. And the reason it's teeming with life is because water comes in through the north and feeds the Sea of Galilee and the water from the south flows out of the Sea of Galilee into the Jordan River. It's this constant flow of water that keeps it fresh and alive. Then in the south, you've got the Dead Sea. You've got the Jordan River flowing into it and all it does is sit in that valley and allow water to evaporate. It's got so much salt multiple times more salty than ocean water. Nothing can live in that Dead Sea. It receives but never gives. And it's just a cesspool, a nasty body of water that's for the most part useless to anyone. And Jesus has called us, once we're growing in our faith, to turn around and serve others. And it doesn't have to be getting up here and giving a sermon. Maybe it's greeting at the front door. Maybe it's volunteering in the nursery. Maybe it's helping with the food pantry on Tuesdays. Maybe it's giving some ride to some teenagers so they can come out to youth on Friday night. There's any number of ways that we can serve others, but Jesus has called us to serve. And if we're not serving, then we're missing a big part of what it means to follow Christ. He came to serve, not to be served. We must be servants as well. Life lesson number two. Don't get distracted by other people's rejection of Christ. Press on toward the goal. James and John were getting a little distracted. You better believe that, uh, man, it really chapped their hide that these Samaritans weren't even letting them come into their home. That was just a routine thing in those days. Hospitality was a benchmark of being a halfway decent Jewish person. As a stranger comes into town, you don't have them out in the middle of the town square. You invite them into your home. That was just basic common courtesy back then. And they weren't given that common courtesy. And so James and John, man, they're miffed. They are ticked. And they're ready to call down fire on those inhospitable Samaritans. It serves them right. What was going on? They were distracted from the mission. And Jesus was making it clear that we do not need to worry so much about those who may not be on board with what God has called us to do as Christians. We pray for them, but we keep pressing on. Notice what Jesus does. He had set his mind, he had set his heart on Jerusalem. He saw the shadow of the cross and the shadow of the tomb and everything he was saying and everything he was doing and every place he went. He saw the cross up ahead of him and nothing was going to distract him from moving to the cross that God had called him to move toward. And as you and I follow Christ, sadly, we'll have family members that aren't on board. And no matter what we say, no matter how many times we invite them to church, they continue to say no, 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 no. We can't be distracted from what God has called us to do. We have it right up there on the wall behind me. What has he called us to do? He's called us to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are lost and dying without Him. We're called to glorify God by teaching His Word faithfully and growing in His Word together as a church. He calls us to equip this generation to serve Christ because adults, one of these days, we're all going to kick a bucket. And one of these days, these teenagers today are going to be the adults of tomorrow and they'll be leading the church of tomorrow. And God has called us to invest in young people 
and equip and train and disciple them so they can be the new leaders in the church. This is what God has called us to. And there'll be people that look at those banners and say, count me out, I'm not into that. I'd rather sing my own favorite songs or I'd rather hear my own favorite messages or I'd rather have this, that, or the other in the church and they seem to completely miss that it's not about me. It's not about us. Jesus has not called us to have a church cower to our own personal preferences. He's called us to carry out the mission of the church, which is to reach the lost, something we could never do in heaven because once we get to heaven, it's too late to bring anybody to Christ. He's called us to teach his word faithfully, even when it's not popular, even when it hurts, even when people say, I want nothing to do with that because it's homophobic, because it's, it's, it's this, that, or the other. You know what? Call it what you may. We teach the word of God here. Do not be ashamed of that. God has called us to make our young people a priority, knowing that this generation is the most unreached, unchurched generation in the history of America, and they need Jesus. This is what God has called us to. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's not pleasant. Sometimes we lose sleep. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it requires our blood, sweat, and tears. But you know what? Jesus never said being a servant is going to be easy. But that's what he's called us to. So like a little child, make ourselves the least. And in the eyes of Jesus, the eyes of the only person who we should be concerned about, pleasing. In the eyes of Jesus, the one who is least is the one who is greatest. The one who is the most magnificent leader is the one who is the servant of all. And so I hope and pray that we will continue to open, open our arms to young people that come in. Continue to open our arms to the grants of the world who come in dirty and messy and smelly and what they say may not make any sense. May we continue to be that church that loves the least of these and points people to Christ because we are servants of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. And we thank you for giving us the privilege of serving. As we serve, keep us humble. As we serve, keep us focused on the prize. As Paul said, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward that goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. May we be like Paul. Lord Jesus, may we follow in your footsteps. May we be like that nurse over there in Scotland, Lord, who said so simply, as long as Jesus values what I do, then that's enough for me. Help us, Lord, to be humble servants until you call us home. In Jesus' name.